Would you please join me in prayer? God, this word that we have heard is word that you have breathed out. And it is good for us. As you tell us, 2 Timothy 3, every word that you breathe out is useful. It's useful for correction, rebuke, training in righteousness. You intend it for us so that we will be complete. If we didn't have this word, we would lack. And so we thank you this morning for it. I, I pray that you show us through your word, your glory, your holiness, your worth. And I pray that you show us our great Savior, Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Nathan Smith. I'm one of the three pastors here, and um, I have the opportunity to preach from this passage this morning. And um, just want to let you know right away as we get into it that what we just read was Exodus chapter 26, the whole chapter. Um, the sermon, in some sense, is also from Exodus chapter 36, verses 8 through 38. Uh, but it's basically a repeat of what we just heard uh, as it's describing the actual construction of the tabernacle. We're doing this with several of these passages through the tabernacle, uh, not because those other verses are not worth preaching from on their own, but because there would be a lot of, of overlap, uh, because here we have the instructions for building the tabernacle, and then uh, ten chapters later we have the description of them actually building it, and in their actual building of it, they follow very closely what the Lord had prescribed. So it's, it's basically, basically repeating the same um, text over again. So this message this morning is going to really focus in on what we just heard, uh, particularly from Exodus chapter 26. And as we consider the tabernacle this morning, it was a holy place. And I wonder when the last time was that you were in a place that you felt was was holy or sacred. A place where maybe you felt like, I'm not sure if I belong here. I feel kind of like I'm an intruder here. In our culture, we are, we are all about inclusion, inclusiveness, right? And sacred places have to do with exclusion. And so we don't have in our culture a whole lot of what we might call holy places or sacred places, but we do have at least one. And it's one that I think is very appropriate for us to consider today on Independence Day. That sacred place is the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier in Arlington National Cemetery. Since 1921, that tomb has provided a final resting place for one of America's unidentified World War I service members. And I want to read the stated purpose of the legislation that established that tomb back in 1921. So I'm quoting here. The, the stated purpose of that tomb was to bring home the body of an unknown American warrior who in himself represents no section, creed, or race in the late war and who typifies, moreover, the soul of America and the supreme sacrifice of her heroic dead. End quote. And because of what this tomb is and what it represents, it's treated as a holy place. It's constantly guarded. 
No visitors can come up and touch the tomb. Can't even get very close to it. And to ensure that this tomb is treated as a holy place, there's a uh, carefully selected, highly trained guard, uh, a group of soldiers who rotate in in training, and uh, they maintain the, the kind of sacredness of the tomb 24-7, 365 days a year, no matter what the weather's like, there is someone guarding that tomb. No one's allowed to approach it, no one's allowed to touch it, except when uh, repairs are needed, if it, it needs cleaning or, or some sort of repair to the stone. But even in that, the sacredness of the tomb is preserved to such a high degree that at one point there was a maintenance worker doing some work on the tomb um, and just kind of mindlessly leaned over and leaned against the tomb and quickly found himself on his backside because one of the guards rushed up to him, took his rifle, shoved it into him and knocked him over just for leaning against the tomb because he was treating it casually. The guard was preserving the sacredness of the tomb. And so the tomb of the unknown soldier really is kind of a sacred space in our culture. But again, that kind of place, that kind of space is pretty unique in American culture. We don't have a lot of places like that. So we might have kind of a hard time really grasping a place like the tabernacle, that kind of sacred space. But if we look at just the sheer amount of text that is given to describing the tabernacle, if we just look at how much of Exodus it takes up, we can see that the tabernacle is hugely significant. I mean, Exodus chapters 25 through 31, and then again, 35 through 40, they're all dedicated to describing the materials, the construction, the setting up, and the dedication of the tabernacle. So that's 13 chapters out of the 40 chapters in Exodus that are dedicated to the tabernacle, this sacred space. And if we ask why it is that there's so much of Exodus dedicated to the tabernacle, uh, it's because this is really the aim of Exodus. We've talked about this uh, in recent messages already, but this is the aim of Exodus, that God would settle among or dwell in the midst of his people. And the tabernacle is the place set apart for God to dwell in. You might remember back in chapter 25 of Exodus in verse 8, that God commanded Moses this. He said, let them make me a sanctuary. A sanctuary is a holy place. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. That's what this whole last section of Exodus is about. God's design to dwell among his people. And anywhere that God dwells, anywhere that God makes his special presence known, is a holy place. The holy presence of God is what makes the tabernacle so significant. And so over the past couple of messages in Exodus, uh, we've looked at some of the items that would be on the inside of the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat. And over that mercy seat, that's where the presence of God would be made manifest. It's from that place that, that God would speak with Moses and, and give commands to his people. And then last week, Pastor Jason showed us the significance of that the, the table that would hold the bread of the presence and the lampstand that would be in the outer part of the tabernacle to bring light. And he showed us the significance of those, that those were symbols, that they were pointing, pointing towards this glorious new covenant truth. And this is a summary of his message last week, that in Christ we have the covenant promise of 
the life-giving presence of God. That's what those items in the tabernacle represented. And so today, this passage describes, as you hopefully picked up as Kenny was reading that text, it describes the construction of the tabernacle itself, what it was to be made of, and with some pretty um, large amount of detail, how it was to be constructed, the dimensions, even some of the construction details of tenons and the, the pillars that they would go into. And in that description, it really highlights a tension that runs all the way through Scripture. And the tension is this. While God's design is to dwell with His people, to give them life, their sinfulness means that to be in His immediate presence would bring death. In other words, even as God's presence is made manifest among them, His people must be excluded from that presence or they will die. And the construction of the tabernacle makes this tension clear. And so I've summarized the main message of the text today in this way. We are all excluded from God's holy places. We are all excluded from God's holy places. And if you know Scripture, if you know about the tabernacle, you are maybe thinking, well, there's more to the story than that, right? You know about the sacrificial system and, and the priests and, and the, um, all of the, the ways that, that people did approach God in this. But you also know that that was very limited, very specific, very uh, circumscribed kind of ways in which people could come into the presence of God. And none of that that we're going to look at in coming weeks makes sense unless we first see this, that we are all excluded from God's holy places. And we see this first in that uh, God's holy presence creates holy places. So we have to understand the holiness of God before we can understand the sacrificial system and the priesthood and all these other things that allow some measure of contact with God's presence. And so in this first section, we just need to see that God's holy presence creates holy places. And we saw this early on in Exodus with the uh, special presence of God coming into the, the burning bush as Moses walks by, he sees a burning bush and God tells him, uh, Moses, you need to take your shoes off because you're on holy ground. Right? We don't know if, if maybe in the 40 years that Moses was out tending sheep, he might have walked by this bush and on that same ground a thousand times. We don't know. It might have been right on the path where he often walked. But because God's presence was there, this was now holy ground. And we saw this again when God made his presence manifest on Mount Sinai, when, when his presence descended in a way that that people could recognize that God's presence is here because there's smoke and there's fire the mountains trembling and the people are forbidden from even touching the mountain on pain of death because the mountain had been made holy by the special presence of God and we see the same thing in our text today that this the whole tabernacle and even it, it wasn't in our text today but there's a courtyard that will be set up around the tabernacle as well. This whole area is considered holy. But then the entrance hall to the tabernacle, that's the outer two-thirds of the tabernacle, that's specifically called, in verse 33 of our passage today, specifically called the holy place. And then the inner third, where the special presence of the Lord is, where the Ark of the Covenant was, that's called the most holy place. 
So you got the holy place and the most holy place. Now think about that. The tabernacle was essentially a tent. It was designed to be mobile. It could fairly easily be taken up, moved, transported, and set up somewhere else. And as soon as they packed it up and moved it, the ground that had previously just been designated as the most holy place, as soon as they packed it up, moved, took the Ark of the Covenant out of that space, then that space again was just a 15-foot by 15-foot patch of dirt. Just ordinary dirt. And then when they move it, set it up again, there's a new patch of dirt that from creation had been just ordinary dirt. And all of a sudden, this 15 by 15 foot patch of dirt becomes the most holy place. It wasn't anything to do with a particular location. There's nothing special about the dirt in in any of these locations that makes it holy. It was the manifest presence of God that transformed these ordinary patches of dirt into the most holy places on earth. These places became holy in the special presence of God because God is holy. In Luke 149, it says of God, holy is his name. And we talk about God's holiness fairly often, but what does it really mean that God is holy? Well, at its most basic, holy means separate. Holy means transcendent. The theologian, uh, now deceased, R.C. Sproul, um, in his great book, The Holiness of God, he defines transcendence. He says, God's holiness points to the infinite distance that separates him from every creature. He is an infinite cut above everything else. When the Bible calls God holy, it means primarily that God is transcendentally separate. And the holiness of God is absolutely foundational to understanding anything else about God. We can see this from Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah 6, starting in verse 1, says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, The train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, you may know this, but in ancient Hebrew, there was no punctuation. And so when uh, someone writing in ancient Hebrew wanted to emphasize something, they didn't have the exclamation mark that is so overused in our uh, current uh, culture. They didn't have the exclamation mark to really emphasize things. And so if they really wanted to emphasize something, uh, they would repeat it. And if they really wanted to emphasize something... They would repeat it again. If they really, really wanted to emphasize something, they would say it three times. And so in Scripture, the holiness of God is the only attribute of God that is elevated to this third degree. 
So we see here these, these creatures as they're flying around the seraphim calling out. They're not just saying that God is holy. They're not just saying that he's holy, holy. They're saying God is holy, holy, holy. There is no way to emphasize the holiness of God more than this. Unless there be any confusion in thinking that, well, this was a strong characteristic of the Old Testament God, as if there were a difference between the Old Testament God and the New Testament God. There's not. But if someone is thinking that way, we see that this threefold emphasis on the holiness of God is repeated in the New Testament, in the very last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 4. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy. It's this unique biblical emphasis on the holiness of God that led Sproul to write in that same book. He said, Today I'm still absorbed with the question of the holiness of God. I am convinced that it is one of the most important ideas that a Christian can ever grapple with. It is basic to our whole understanding of God and of Christianity. Are you convinced of this? Are you absorbed with the question of the holiness of God? Do you grapple with the implications of what God's holiness means for how people relate to him? More to the point, have you ever, do you regularly grapple with the implications of God's holiness for how you relate to him? There are many Christians sing song after song that claim a desire to be in the presence of God. Do you sing those songs lightly, without much thought? Or do you sing them with a reverent sense of the awesome holiness of God, his transcendence, his otherness? To be in the presence of God is to be in a holy place. And that has massive implications for how we approach him because we are not holy. The second part of the message today is that sin excludes us from God's holy presence. Sin excludes us from God's holy presence. Again, this is what our passage today makes so evident, even though it's not explicitly stated, but I hope you'll see as we go through this that it's clear in the text that sin excludes us from God's holy presence. Exodus 26.33 says, You shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy the Ark of the Testimony was where the presence of God, again, was made manifest. You might say that this is where the holiness of God was most intense. And so, because that's the case, there's this increasing degree of exclusion the closer you get to the presence of God. The most holy place where the Ark was kept was blocked off by that veil, that curtain that we just read about in verse 33. 
And that curtain was just one solid piece of cloth. There was no doorway cut out into it. There's no split in the middle like a theater curtain where someone could just easily part it and go through. It was a solid piece of cloth. This wasn't intended to be just a decorative entryway. It was intended to be a barrier between the holy place and the most holy place. And that exclusion from God's presence was made even more clear by the fact that the entrance to the tabernacle itself uh, was blocked off by a second curtain. We see that in verse 36. You shall make a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen embroidered with needlework. And so to reach the most holy place where the presence of God was made manifest, a person would have to go through two curtains. You go through the entrance curtain, and then you go past, through, somehow, around, or lifting up the curtain that separates the holy place from the most holy place. And the whole structure of the tabernacle was made up of these frames covered with layers of material. Josh, do you have that image? You can go ahead and throw that up there. So this, the tabernacle is a, a, a visual thing, and it's sometimes it's easy to, easier to have a, a visual depiction of it. So you see the, the entryway where the little guy is standing. That's supposed to be a priest. Um, that's the, the curtain that blocked the entry to the holy place. And then there's the, go back two-thirds of the way, and there's a curtain that blocks the last third, the most holy place, from entry. And so you have these two curtains blocking entry to the presence of God. And then the structure of the tabernacle with these frames, uh, it actually had four layers of material over it. The outer three layers served kind of practical purposes in the sense that they kept the, the elements, sun, rain, out. They protected the inner layer of the curtain. They protected the, the uh everything that was in the tabernacle, but those also served a really practical purpose of keeping people out from, protecting them from the immediate presence of God. They acted as a physical barrier. But that's the outer three layers. The inner layer, the fourth layer, was made of fine linen. It's also showing this exclusion, but in a more visual, more picturesque way. It's described in verse one of uh, chapter 26 in Exodus. You shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. And that last part is what's really especially significant for the theological meaning of these curtains. The cherubim were to be woven into the inner layer of the tabernacle covering. So these tin curtains, they're draped up and over the frame and down the sides to form the ceiling and the inner walls of the tabernacle. And so this is what anyone who was in the tabernacle would see. Cherubim all around. They see them on the ceiling and on the walls. And then they were also, the cherubim were to be woven into the curtain that blocked the entrance to the most holy place. That's in verse 31. You shall make a veil or curtain of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen, and it shall be made with cherubim skillfully woven into it. The cherubim are very significant. 
And if you uh, maybe have seen images of cherubim or a, a cherub, you might not understand why they're so significant because for whatever reason, uh, cherubs have come to be pictured or depicted as fat little babies with wings playing harps. Don't know how I thought about looking up the history of that this week and I decided I probably wasn't the best use of my time. But it's just, uh, you know, there are these... these Fat little babies with wings are cherubs, but that's not at all the biblical picture of the cherubim. In the Bible, cherubim are fearsome spiritual creatures that guard the entrance into God's holy presence. So when the prophet Ezekiel has a vision of God, he sees four living creatures, and these four living creatures are later identified as cherubim. They each have not a cute little baby face, but four faces, actually. A human face, the face of a lion, the face of an ox, and the face of an eagle. And they each had four wings. In Ezekiel 1, 24, Ezekiel says, describing these cherubim, And when they went, I heard the sound of their wings like the sound of many waters. I haven't been to Niagara Falls, but I've seen some video and heard some audio. And I've been to other lesser waterfalls, the sound of many waters is loud. It's a roar. And he says, like the sound of the Almighty, a sound of tumult, like the sound of an army. This is what the cherubim just sound like. Not much like fat little flying babies, right? They are fearsome, intimidating creatures. And they first show up in Scripture in Genesis chapter 3 after Adam and Eve rebelled against God by eating the forbidden fruit. Where it says in verse 24, He drove out the man. And at the east end of the Garden of Eden, He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, the Garden of Eden was the place where the presence of God was made manifest in his creation. It was where Adam and Eve enjoyed the fellowship of God, where they enjoyed the presence of God, where they had intimate conversations with God. And so when they sinned and were cast out of the garden, the most terrible, terrible consequence was that they were separated from the life-giving presence of God. And the cherubim guarded the entrance back into Eden so that they could never return to God's presence. The cherubim had a dual purpose, though. They actually served as a safeguard for Adam and Eve so that they wouldn't immediately die by being exposed to the holy presence of God. Do you remember God told them, if you eat this fruit, on the day you eat of it, you will surely die. But God showed mercy by excluding them from his presence. And the cherubim helped to guard, to safeguard Adam and Eve in that way. And so back to the tabernacle. And these walls, these curtains on the ceiling, everywhere we see cherubim. And these intimidating cherubim were a reminder to Israel that to get close to God's holy presence it no longer meant comfort and life and peace for mankind. To draw near to his presence now meant death. And so as the cherubim had guarded the entrance to the Garden of Eden, 
after the fall, they would now symbolically guard the entrance to God's presence in the tabernacle. They warned anyone who would dare to approach the most holy place where the presence of God was. It would, like, it would be like they were shouting a warning, you are drawing near to the presence of a holy God, and if you get too close, you will surely die. They were a vivid reminder of the sin that caused this great chasm, this separation between mankind and a holy, holy, holy God. God's holy presence has become a place of death where mankind can only feel the shame of sin and the fear of the death that we justly deserve. And the prophet Isaiah's response after seeing a vision of God enthroned and hearing this proclamation of God's holiness, the way that he responds, it highlights this reality dramatically. He's brought into the presence of God and Isaiah responds with this, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. says I'm lost because I have unclean lips. And in saying that, Isaiah is saying metaphorically what Jesus would later say explicitly, that unclean lips are a result of an unclean heart. Jesus said in Matthew 15, what comes out of the mouth, making the mouth, the lips unclean, it proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. Out of the heart come all these things. Jesus is saying that your sin isn't just skin deep. It's heart deep. It's not just the words you say or the things that you do. Sin is like this deadly cancer that has its tentacles wound into and through your heart. You can't clean up your life enough to come into God's presence. Even if you could maybe kind of get your life straight enough so that you could feel pretty good about yourself, at least in comparison with some other people that you know, even if that were the case, this deadly cancer of sin would still be lodged within your heart. Sin is a native rebellion against God. It's a fearful hatred of his holiness. You were born with this. You are powerless to eradicate this from your heart. That means to to get rid of it. You can't get rid of it on your own. It's an invisible brand upon your soul that marks you out as unholy, as one who is only deserving of death in the presence of a holy God. And a common response to this is, well, yeah, that was true then, but things changed when Jesus came, right? Because Jesus is God, and when Jesus was close to people, they didn't die. They weren't afraid of him. And there's a kernel of truth in that. Jesus is God in the flesh. That's true. John 1.14 refers to God the Son, who is the second person of the Trinity, uh, refers to him as the Word. John 1.14 says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
That word that's translated dwelt, it could be translated as tabernacled. So the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. So yes, in Jesus, God was tabernacling among us. God's presence dwelt on the earth in Jesus. But as we've been seeing through the tabernacle, God's presence was veiled. And God's presence was veiled in Jesus. And so, yeah, most often people were unafraid to be near Jesus, to even touch him. They, they tried to touch him. They flocked to him to be healed. They wanted him to, to bless their children. Jesus took little children onto his lap, and they didn't die But when the divine power and holiness of Jesus shone out from the tabernacle, from that veiling of his body, guess what? People were afraid. You might remember the way that the disciples responded after they were out on the Sea of Galilee in a boat at night and a storm came up. Jesus was sleeping. They wake him up. He just says a couple words. He says, be still. And the storm ceases. And the disciples' response in Mark 4 says, They were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? They were afraid when they caught a glimpse of God's holy presence in Christ. Again, Peter's cry after the disciples had been fishing all night, Uh, Jesus comes along and says, hey, why don't you try the other side of the boat? They reluctantly do so. The nets fill with more fish than they'd ever seen, almost sinking the boats. Peter realizes that this is Jesus, and he says, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. He's echoing Isaiah's cry when he saw the glory of the Lord. Go away from me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm a sinner. I can't be in the presence of a holy God. So this was true when the holiness of God shone through the tabernacle of Jesus' flesh. But you also have to realize that in his first coming, Jesus came in peace. But that's not going to be the case when he returns. His holiness will then be unveiled. Revelation chapter 6 gives us a picture of this second coming. Jesus, who came the first time as a sacrificial lamb, will not be gentle Revelation 6, 5 says, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones, and the generals and the rich and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? See, the sobering message of the Old Testament tabernacle is the same as the message of God enfleshed and tabernacling among us in Jesus. Sin excludes everyone from God's holy presence. And if you really believe and grasp this, then you will join the cry of the Apostle Paul when he says at the end of Romans 7, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? Who will rescue me from this body of death? Paul recognized 
Sin excluded him from God's holy presence. Sin excludes everyone from God's holy presence. And we have to understand this sobering truth. If we are to understand anything else about the tabernacle, anything about the coming of Christ and his work, we must be sobered by the holiness of God in our sin. That is what this passage tells us. But God has called me and all who are preachers to be preachers of the gospel, right? And I wouldn't be a preacher of the gospel if I just ended this message here with Paul's question of who can rescue me from this body of death? I need to give you Paul's answer. And I'm going to give you a little bit more than that too, but Paul's He's asking this question. He answers his own question. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is how I will be rescued. So what does Paul mean by that? How is it that Jesus saves us from what he calls this body of death? This sin sick body of death. Well, first, I want to make clear that it doesn't happen through what some who would call themselves progressive Christians teach. Some of those who will call themselves progressive Christians claim that Jesus really saved us by doing good works, loving people, being giving, self-sacrificing, teaching us how we can live a life of love the way that he did. And they would claim that then if we embrace what Jesus did, if we follow his example, if we follow his teachings, then In that way, we become more loving, more like Christ, and we can come into the presence of God. Friends, that is not good news. That's not the gospel. That kind of thinking comes, first of all, from a failure to recognize the significance of God's holiness. If Jesus just appeared, if he just did miracles, gave us some teaching, and then he left, then those who know about Jesus, who know how he lived, who know what he taught, would actually face greater condemnation because greater knowledge brings greater judgment. All of those who know about Jesus, who see in the Gospels how he lived his life, would see even more clearly how far short of the holiness of God they fall. I mean, Jesus taught what? The greatest commandment was love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. Well, let me tell you, you haven't done that. You haven't obeyed that commandment for five minutes of your life. No one has. Not even five seconds of your life. So if if this is all that Jesus gave us, an example and some commandments to follow, then He just brought us greater condemnation. And that's it. But Jesus did more than just live a righteous life. He did more than just do some miracles. He did more than teach us the true meaning of the law, though he did these things. But Christ came to bring us into the presence of God. I love the way that Peter says this in 1 Peter 3. He says, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, 
that he might bring us to God. Christ suffered that he might bring us to God. And so the last point that I want to unpack today is that Jesus is the only way into God's holy presence. Uh, The Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all tell us that when Jesus died on the cross, the curtain of the temple was split. It was ripped in half from top to bottom. And that temple curtain was a larger version of this this veil, this curtain that we've read about that blocked the entrance to the most holy place in the tabernacle. And so when Jesus died, God ripped that curtain in two to demonstrate that we need no longer fear the presence of God. We need no longer be excluded from the presence of God. The cherubim no longer block the way to the tree of life. A way has been opened to bring us back into the life-giving presence of God. And in light of what Christ accomplished by his death, the writer of Hebrews, he gives this beautiful exhortation in Hebrews chapter 10. This is verses 19 through 23. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience our bodies washed with pure water let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful he says let us draw near near to the presence of this holy 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 God, not because God has, has somehow become less holy, not because we have somehow made ourselves more holy, but because we have faith in this new and living way that has been opened up for us to approach the presence of God through what Jesus has done by making atonement for our sins through his death on the cross. By faith in that, we go into the presence of God boldly. And so I want to close just by asking, is Jesus your confession of hope? Is Jesus your confession of hope? If not, then you have misplaced your hope. Don't hope in your own goodness. Don't hope in the leniency of God, as if God will just somehow kind of overlook your sin. God is too holy. Your sin goes too deep. Psalm 5 says something very sobering about God. You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. All of us are evildoers. So don't fool yourself into thinking that you can Draw near to God with confidence apart from Jesus. Put your hope in Christ alone. Draw near to God through Jesus by faith in him. Believe in what he has done. Believe that he is the only way to God. And if you do confess that Christ alone is your hope, 
then hold fast to that. Brothers and sisters, this, I, I love this exhortation in Hebrews 10. Hold fast. Don't waver, he says. Don't, don't trust in anything else. You trust in Jesus to bring you into the presence of God. Bring you into the presence of God, not with great fear, but with great joy. See, Jesus was your only hope when you first trusted in him. And Jesus is your only hope every single moment of your life as you live it as a Christian. You draw near to God now only through holding fast to the faith that Jesus will bring you in. Amen? Amen. And Jesus will be your only hope on that great day when he returns and brings you forever into the presence of God with great joy. So don't waver from that hope. He who promised is faithful. He will surely do it. Let's pray. God, we praise you for this great salvation. We praise you because you are holy, because you are worthy. But God, we we would only tremble in fear before you were it not for the work of Christ. So God, we worship in Christ Jesus by the power of his spirit. I pray that all who are here would trust in nothing else but Jesus, that he would be the solid rock of their lives. He would be their only hope in life and in death that they would confess this today and hold fast to it to the end. God, we trust not in our holiness, not in our wisdom, not even in our faith, but we trust in Jesus, the object of our faith. And we pray in his great name. Amen.